Hello and welcome back to Good Teaching with Dr. Toy and Ali. This is the podcast where we ask college instructors what are their most effective teaching strategies. And today we have an amazing guest, Dr. Arovisa Owe, and I'm so happy to have her on the podcast today. Let me share a little bit about her and then we'll jump right into the interview. So Dr. Arobasa Owe is a professor, leadership development expert, women's empowerment global speaker, and author of Be Bold, Be Confident, Be You, a motivational guidebook in shattering the fear ceiling. As a former United Nations youth leader, she created and hosted a series of programs and events to provide the next generation of emerging leaders with with the essential tools, resources, and advice needed to succeed. Impressed by her impact with the New York City Young Professionals community, Former President Barack Obama invited Dr. Arovasa to participate in a roundtable discussion at the White House in 2014 to discuss the launch of the administration's Young African Leaders Initiative and its Nelson Mandela Washington Fellowship. Since then, Dr. Arovasa has traveled the world, fulfilling her mission to empower leaders through entrepreneurship, career development, leadership, and advocacy. She is the founder and chief executive officer of For Health Scholars, an educational media and consultancy firm for healthcare professionals. Dr. Arovasa is also the founder of the Be Bold Africa Foundation, a Christian-based charitable organization that offers career and leadership development mentorship programs for young women and girls globally. She has partnered with and earned endorsements from esteemed leaders and organizations, including NYS um, Senator Leroy Comrie and the United Nations Association, the U.S. Department, the U.S. Department of State, the International Reciprocal Exchange, the NYU Columbia University, and the African Union. Dr. Arovasa holds a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in healthcare administration. And if you're impressed, you know I'm impressed too. <laughs> Amazing. Welcome to the show, Dr. Arovasa. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm impressed too. I'm like, I did all of this. <laughs> yes. Like if you are ever feeling down on yourself, anybody listening, I don't want to read your bio. <laughs> yes. We're so happy to have you here to talk about your teaching as well as the work that you're doing in the different areas that you're doing it. Um, so yeah, I want to just start by like getting to know you a little bit and can you share like a little bit about yourself as well as your journey to getting your doctor of healthcare administration and then becoming a professor? Oh, absolutely. First and foremost, thank you for having me. It's always good to just talk with fellow uh, colleagues in the industry um, because I'm pretty sure we're all going through similar experiences. So I'm excited to be here. And just my journey, uh, where do I start? I'm born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And all my life, I can honestly say, I knew I was meant to do something impactful, but I just didn't know what. And in like the course of my journey growing up, I, you know, was involved in just different activities, but teaching has always been something that has been like a passion of mine. And so when I was younger, I used to force my siblings (laughs) 
to do, like play school. And my dad would actually brought me a whiteboard. And like every weekend I would do like school with them and I'm teaching them stuff. And um, they actually did it. Uh, and my dad, being a Nigerian dad, he's like, yes, education is very important. And so um, throughout just uh, growing up, I just was navigating. I always was attracted to leadership, um, anything leadership, anything where I had to kind of voice um, opportunities for change. I was all about that. And so in high school, then going to college. But what really made me get my doctor of health administration was not something that I thought I was going to do. I never had like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor of health administration. I actually was doing a lot of work in um Young, the young professionals community in New York. And um, I was invited by New York State Senator Leroy Comrie to host his Women in um, Health Fair because I had started doing some research with the Department of Health in Hempstead, Long Island. We were trying to understand why breast cancer was on a rise there. And so I started to make my a name for myself among their community. And this is just the power of networking. I hosted a annual breast cancer kind of mammogram fair. And and a lot of people came out and one of the ladies there was like, oh, I'm just going to recommend you to um, New York State Senator. I work for his office. I think you would be an amazing um, asset to their department. They're looking to um, connect with young women who are um, have a background in healthcare, but also um, very much involved in community development. And so he invited me to be an MC of his women's health program. And when I got there, Everybody on the, the like the nameplates, it says doctor. So when I got to my seating, it says doctor Arobsa Obi. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I'm not a doctor. Oh, we need to change this. I don't want anybody to think I'm, you know, falsely say, saying something about myself that I'm not. And as I told the lady, she was so nonchalant about it. She's like, oh, that's fine. Keep it. Just take it with you. <laughs> right. Can, can I interrupt it? and ask you, how old were you when you were like, the person speaking at this event. Oh, <laughs> or yeah. event. Yeah. in my 20s. So I was like 27. Yeah, 27. Like 27, That's Very impressive. Yeah. Because behind the scenes too, um, I had started my career journey very early. And so I started and working in the management side of healthcare at like age 21. Um, I, I was working at a private practice. So that's where I even got into the field of healthcare administration. I ran from it because to it, because my dad was like, oh, you need to do something like nursing or being a doctor. And I'm like, that is not me. I went to performing arts high school. <laughs> I thought <laughs> like nothing about medicine was in my, you know, kind of forefront of like future endeavors. But I just knew that I wanted to lead. And so when I went to undergrad and I got into the program, because I was like, okay, I want to go to HBCU. So I started at Norfolk State University. And my dad was like, the only way you can stay there is if you're doing like nursing. And so for the first two years, I did the nursing program and I was really good because I'm book smart. And, um, I, you know, I excel, but when it was time for the clinicals, I was like, this is not for me. I don't want to touch these patients. I, <laughs> I don't want to be hands-on. I don't want to be responsible for someone's life like this. Mm -hmm. And there has to be something different. And my roommate at the time, she was just like, 
you know, just do health administration. My, I wanted to be a, a culinary um, pro artist, you know, do a chef. And my mom is Jamaican and she's like, no, you can't do that. That doesn't make any money. And so I'm doing health administration. And when um, I went to their department, I said, okay, I need to do something. I want to do health administration. I don't want to do nursing. And <laughs> the dean was just kind of like, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, I don't want to touch patients that way. <laughs> and I said, don't tell my dad. And she was like, we can't tell your parents anything. I said, oh, perfect. And so, thought <laughs> <laughs> you get a surprise degree. <laughs> yes. So my dad, when it came for a graduation, because um, I started at Norfolk State University, then I took a year and I traveled to Nigeria and I was living in Nigeria for roughly about a year because my dad was doing um, a lot of politician politics and trying to get him his foot in the door with that. And I was just intrigued with like, okay, let me see how the political campaigns looks like in the country where many people would advise like, oh, you went to Nigeria during the height of political yeah. um, activities. And I'm like, yes, God is always on my side. So, <laughs> you know, I've always had that, like, I can't be touched. <laughs> God watches over me. And it was so eye-opening for me because that is really what also shaped a lot of my um, not-for-profit and philanthropic work. And so that's how I started in health administration, not by something like, oh, I knew I wanted to do this. I was running from nursing. And um, but I always had this passion. So I would do community development because when I came back from Nigeria, I was like, oh, I want to help like Nigerians. Like I've seen I've been in the culture. I know um, they do things really amazing. And it's not a place where it's a poor place, but with the right resources, you can really help people thrive. And so I came back and I was like, OK, there's things that I want to do, like I want to do um, programs because when I was there, I had did like a small pilot and I was like, okay, if y'all vote for my dad, I'll give y'all a football field. And so I started speaking to the youth because I noticed we would go to all of these campaigns and everybody's talking to these older folks, but it's the youth that is here in like crowds. And I'm like, who's talking to them? And so I had a camera at the time. So I would take pictures. I mean, my mind is very creative. So I was like, oh, let me just capture this moment. And I would take pictures. And it would intrigue a lot of the youth because they're like, oh, we want to know, like, get the camera, you know. And so I started talking to them. And I was like, okay, if, you know, what my dad is about. So becoming like a campaign, I don't know, manager. Campaign manager, manager. that's what I was going <laughs> to say. <laughs> my dad. And it allowed me to connect with a lot of youth there. And I, like, they came out on voting day they came out to support my dad. And unfortunately, my dad didn't win the position. And well, it left a lasting impact in like the region where my dad was doing his political campaign. And I promised them, I said, if y'all vote for my dad, I'll give y'all like a soccer field. And so I was able to rally um, some money. I don't know where I got this money from, but... <laughs> I was able to get like, you know, the uh, soccer balls and stuff like that. And we had a little space where they can play soccer. And so that was like the night I said, oh, if I could do this in Nigeria and this is on a like a smaller scale to me, um, I can do more. And I always thought because I thought I was going to move to Nigeria. I was like, oh, I was in love with the country. I loved like just my, you know, culture at that time. And I was just like, yeah, I could do more. So when I came back, I was like, OK. I'm going to do school. I'm going to finish my undergraduate program, but I'm not going to go back to Norfolk State. I'm going to finish in New York. And I went to Lehman College. And on the side, I'm also going to figure out how do I get involved in like the African affairs 
work. And so I had a family friend who was like, yeah, just come with me. I'm a part of the United Nations Association and we do a lot of like African development work. We do a lot of happy hours. So when I went, I was like, okay, I started to get there. And then their president was like, he's stepping down. Does anybody want to be the president? And so instantly I was like, yeah, let me do it. Cause I've always <laughs> had like this drive, this passion for leadership. And in my mind, I was like, there's more to us as young professionals than happy hours. Like that's nice, but we want to do content driven activities. We, a lot of us want to know how we can get our foot on the grounds on the continent and, um, you know, make impact and it, it's, you can do that and still have fun. And so once I became, um, the president of this committee, that's when things really, really started to take off of me because I was doing programs and I was just getting collaborations with all types of like the missions, United Nations, Columbia university, just anybody who was a, um, of, you know, a high regard in New York City who wanted to be about cultural development, I will work with them. So, I mean, I used to hit the streets, like walking, not literally, like, <laughs> I would just literally walk, you know, I had this mission, like, I'm going to do this. And it grew, it grew. Uh, people started to recognize me. I did a big um, event at the UN. It was a movie screening. It was the first time the UN had featured a movie from the African continent in their the and like their theater room. And that was well attended. And so the buzz is out there. There's like, we don't know who this girl really is, where she came from, but she's doing amazing work. And because of that, and really meeting different people, they were like, oh, um, there's an initiative happening with President Obama. You know, he's of Kenyan descent. He wants to do stuff on the ground. I'm just going to submit your name to um, his advising team. And he and the advising team are going to pick like uh, members who can come and help them shape this program. And so I was chosen and I was in the White House. Uh, and I'm so proud to see like the initiative is still operating today because it was through our recommendations, myself and a few other prominent um, professionals from the DC, Maryland, Virginia, New York area who were just contributing, like, this is what this program should look like. And even in those conversations, I was like, we need to have something on healthcare. We need to have something on healthcare. It's not just about business development. Health is our wealth at the time. And that was my plug of like, okay, I'm going to do all of this community development work, but I got to still use my healthcare <laughs> degree somehow. <laughs> and so um, that worked out and then more events. So I, I was like working. It sounds like busy, but I don't know at the time how I was managing it. But I was just so as I was doing the African affairs work, I was also now expanding in the healthcare side. And I would start to focus on mammogram health, like women's health, breast health. And the job that I was working with at the time, another organization just came and was like, we want you to do a mammogram, a screening fair. And I was like, all right. And so I did that for the clinics and then um, the organization, which I don't think you're supposed to do, <laughs> but they reached out to me directly. And it was like, we don't really want to work with the organization, but we want to work with you. Mm -hmm. And um, we love like you are able to get people to come like the whole of Harlem. So we cut off the blocks from 135th and Linux. To, oh no, sorry, 115th and 116th and Linux in Harlem. It was just crowded of women coming to get their screenings and it was all free. And the organization was like, 
we weren't expecting all of this, but we love it. And we, you are the recipe to this. You are the key ingredient. And so I was like, okay, well, I got, I have to be mindful and not be in a conflict of interest with my job, but let's go into, let me do some research. Cause at that time I was doing my master's program. So I was learning about research and I said, like, oh, you know, on Long Island, um, Hempstead, Long Island specifically, they have high like breast cancer um, cases out there and we're trying to figure out why. And it was like, that's perfect. And so me being a person like, okay, we're going to get this done. I started connecting with the DOH there and just many like organizations, healthcare facilities. And they were like, okay, you host this women's health fair. And I did that. And because of that, that led me to um, New York state Senator Leroy Comrie. I emceed the event. The lady told me I was a doctor. And when I had the place car and I was driving home, it started to ring a bell. I was like, oh, I like how this sounds, Dr. Rosaoui. And I kept that place card. I think I still have it. It's probably in one of my boxes. But I kept that place card and I was like, all right, I'm going to go forward and do my doctor of health administration. Also, um, another friend of mine, she was like, you're a perfect professor. Like my university is hiring. I think you would teach. They're looking for people in your department and that health department because she was with social work. But she said the health, um, Allied Health, they're looking for professors and I think you would be a good fit. And at the time I wasn't teaching, but she was like, I see something in you. I see how you speak and the stuff that you're doing at your jobs. Because I, as I was doing stuff for myself, also on my job front, all of a sudden they're like, oh, we want you to transform our HR department. We want you to be a part of this committee. So I don't know how I was doing all of that. <laughs> all the same time, but by God's grace, it happened. And that really just drived me into getting the Doctor of Health Administration degree, becoming a professor, all things that people had spoke over me. It was nothing like I had, oh yeah, I want to be a professor. Oh yeah. I didn't even know health administration existed until I ran into the program. And um, for professors, I always just, it was just never something I explored. I was just doing me. And by People just being in my journey, um, seeing my work ethic, seeing my passion, they believed. And that is how I became a doctor of health administration and also a professor, which I love now. Like, I don't see myself not teaching. <laughs> I know that was a lot, but. <laughs> no, that Shock was perfect. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. So I have so many thoughts. So many things came to mind. One was just like. I understand when you share like all the things that you're doing, it all of a sudden sounds like, oh my gosh, I was doing a lot out here. That kind of seems like impossible or unattainable. And I feel the same way when people say that about me, they're like, oh, how are you teaching and then running a business and stuff like that? And there's just something about like the power of alignment. Like when you're doing stuff that's like in your wheelhouse, something you're very passionate about, it almost doesn't really feel like work. And you're not even like, reaching out for these opportunities, they're just coming to you because you're just in your zone. And so I totally get that. And yeah, I'm so glad you shared that. <laughs> also, I heard that you went to a performing arts high school. And do you think, well, maybe this is a natural gift, but you are a wonderful speaker. Like you're very good at speaking. Like you're very like welcoming. You like pulled me in when you were speaking and sharing your story. So did you learn to be like a good speaker in a performing arts school or has that just been naturally what you've always been good at? 
I think it's been natural because even when I was in elementary school, I had won an award for who was your role model. Mm -hmm. And many people in my, you know, in elementary school, they were writing about like superheroes and things <laughs> of that nature. But I wrote about my mom being my role model mm -hmm. and my teacher. And once again, always people seeing the, um, you know, power and passion and where I can go, my competency. She's like, I'm going to submit you to a competition. That's what she told my parents. And I won. And on, on that stage, they asked you, you know, you have to explain why, you know, you wrote about your mom. Like my parents, like something with her is very special. And like when I'm in situations like that, it's no training. It just, I show up and I speak and it doesn't bother me. Even then my, my dad would laugh because he's like, there was a little boy on the stage and he was like, oh, auntie just told him like, hey, <laughs> <laughs> you got to wait your turn. <laughs> so I just think I was born with that um, ability, which I've learned. Um, I've used it in a way where um in a humble way where it's just like, I'm just like everybody else. And, but when it's time to do the things that I'm passionate about, I'm going to make sure it gets done. And um, I, people just always seen that, I guess is the light that is on my life. And they've always like bought into it. Cause they're like, you need to do this. Or I'm going to recommend you to this. It's never really been about me finding anything. <laughs> it's always mm -hmm. like, we see this talent that you have. We see your passion. We know that you can do very well in these spaces. Here's the opportunity. And I just would take them and run with it because I've always had like, I know I'm doing something to create impact. <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. That is so good. Okay. Okay. I love this. I love hearing about your background. And I've known you for like over a year and I didn't know half of the things that you shared here. So that was very cool. Oh, thank um, you. Yes. Okay. So let's transition into um, academic work. So I want to ask how your semester is going so far. And I know you don't have like the typical like professor job or job. So <laughs> will you share a little bit about your job, how the semester is going, as well as the exciting news that you told me before? Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, the semester is going, um, surprisingly enough, um, it is a busy semester for me, but it's a semester like this is what I enjoy because I love teaching. And so I love when I have like a class load. I'm thankful that there's a class load because I work part time as a faculty member and I actually like it that way. Um, early on, I was like, oh, I want full time. I want full time. But I'm a person who likes to have the control over my time. And um, I love that um, adjunct teaching gives me the opportunity that I can teach and do what I love, but I could do also other things. Mm -hmm. And I don't like when that's one thing I don't like when something is monopolizing my time. Like that for me is freedom is like when people ask, do you want consistency in a job or freedom? I will always choose freedom. <laughs> I will always choose freedom, freedom in my time. And so um, I work with two universities, one in New York and also um, one based in Dallas, Texas. And because it's all online, that also helps me have the flexibility. I, I've been teaching with the University of New York for a long time. They were the ones who gave me my first opportunity to teach because I did my teaching demo. I didn't even know what that was. I just showed up and the BP was like, we want you. <laughs> wow. People stress so hard about the teaching demo. And you were just like, 
<laughs> I was just like, oh, you they say put a presentation together. I had asked my friend, I was like, what is this teaching demo all about? She said, okay, you just have to show your teaching style. I didn't even know what teaching style it was. I just knew that I understood the business of healthcare and um, they taught me to, they asked me to teach on the topic of managed care. And I just came and I was like, okay. And I started speaking and he was like, yes. <laughs> we uh, that's so good. <laughs> yes. uh, I've been with that university for seven years. And then of recent, there's another university. It's Christian based um, here in Dallas. I've been with them since 2020. Wow. Four years now. Wow. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And so I love the fact that um, I've had the ability to instill knowledge into um, learners because I share everything that I wish I had in my educational journey, um, the good things and the things that presented challenges. And um, I really just share those like real insights in the classroom. And I think that's why my students, they gravitate to me. Oftentimes my classes are booked and it's a YouTube now. Um, doesn't it, it helps with that because now they're like, oh, I've seen you on YouTube. Yeah. Definitely, he's the person, and because my name is so unique, it's like we're not. This has to be her. And so when they look it up, they're like, "Yes, I'm in her class, and it's, I see her. I watch you on YouTube, professor, and I'm so happy to be in your class." And I'm like, "Oh wow, yeah." <laughs> so it's it's busy, but it's going. And um, at the Dallas School, there are new um. They have a new master's program and they were looking for someone to really help them grow it in a way that um, would be sustainable. And they had this position of lead adjunct and um, more money. And it just allowed me to give like that creative um, insights that I want to bring into the classroom. I think um, being a change agent requires you to insert yourself in places that may feel uncomfortable to many, but it allows you to express your voice. It allows you to advocate for things that um, students can relate to. You know, I hate the classrooms, honestly, that all you're doing is just speaking at me. You're just lecturing to me. This stuff is not, you know, transfer or converting to how I'm going to use this in the field. And um, I've always been like, okay, no, the classroom should feel is like an extension of what you're about to walk into as a healthcare professional, especially um, the healthcare industry is multifaceted and highly complex. And it's not for the faint of heart. And also having that like practical experience, um, clinical expertise and you know all of the years because I've done that now for like 16 years <laughs> working in hospitals clinics all alongside all of the other stuff that I um, talked about earlier and has given me a wealth of knowledge that it, I get to offload it in the classroom because like my family and friends they're like we don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and I'm like you just don't you know you don't get it but when I come in I offload it in the classroom the students is like wow yeah, that you had that exam. I'm like, yeah, that's what I mean, right? <laughs> like, this is this is what I mean when I'm telling you this was so a unique thing that happened as a manager and the patient. You know, where family members is like, okay, are you okay? Do you do you need some stress? Uh, what what's happening? How can I support you? And so I love bringing bringing that into the classroom. Um, students, it's busy. Academia is busy, but I love the adjunct lifestyle because it allows me to do the things that I enjoy. <laughs> I love to hear your perspective on being an adjunct because I think a lot of people kind of think of an adjunct position as like a consolation, like, oh, well, I'll get a better job later. I'm using air quotes if you're listening uh -huh. um, audio, but like, 
Um, people think that the tenure track professor position is like the gold standard and it's the job that everyone should strive for. It wasn't what I wanted, right? I just wanted to teach. So I chose a position where I'm teaching and you enjoy teaching and like sharing your experience and you like the flexibility of being an adjunct. So I'm so happy to hear that you've been having a positive experience and that you can have a positive experience as a adjunct. So thanks for sharing that. Yes, there is a hustle though. It, <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a hustle because with adjunct, there's um, you for many people they have other sources of income because depending on the demand, you can have an amazing uh, like a large class load or it can be small, and they usually do first come first serve basis. And um, I, I would tell you that um, as an adjunct professor, you, it causes you not to have all of your eggs in one basket. And so once you have that in your mind, like, okay, uh, what is my game plan? It makes it a little more easier to push through. And that's something I had to learn. Mm -hmm. um, I would say uh, the pandemic taught me that because um, at the height, before the pandemic, I was working full-time in the hospital, but I also was teaching part-time. So I've always had like sources of income. But during the height of the, like the beginning of the pandemic, I was just wrapping up my doctoral program. And so I really needed like the time. So I had to make a decision. I said, okay, well, I can't be teaching working full-time and trying to focus on this dissertation, I want to be done. So I made the decision to really go um, let go of the hospital job and just teach. And even in the pandemic, the, uh, there was a lot of workload because everybody's moving online. And so once the pandemic kind of trickled off, things started to slow down. And so I've always been a person like, okay, I'm not putting all of my eggs in one basket and academia has this role in this life, but it's not depend, like I'm not depending on it for everything. I have other things going on. And um, there are days where you have amazing days and then there are days you're like, whoo, <laughs> you know, um, but as long as you have a support system and a place where you anchor yourself in, which for me is God, you can really enjoy that experience for sure. Wholeheartedly agree. Yes. Okay. So you were talking about teaching and I think this is a good time to bring in. So in this podcast, we always talk about uh, college instructors' most effective teaching strategies and kind of hear what people are doing in their classrooms. It's really working with their students. And so the uh, teaching strategies you brought today are discussion-based learning and case scenarios. So can you tell us about what that means and how you use them in your classroom? Yes. So one thing I teach online. And so oftentimes you got to keep people, these students engaged and um, it can't be me lecturing you, especially like I have a research class and that class is three hours. So it wow. can't be me three hours lecturing you about research, which can be very, um, you know, the, the theories of research can sound really mundane after a while. It's dry. It's dry. <laughs> Right, it's dry, and so um, how do we make this where in the field of healthcare, regardless if you're on the clinical side or the administrative side, it's still a hands-on business, and it requires a lot of communication. And so the discussion-based learning is like we're looking at okay this is a problem. This is a theory that we're talking about. Let's have a discussion around it. What do you think? You know, I, you didn't buy this expensive textbook just to have it. You bought it, you're reading it and it makes students read because it's like, okay, I need to come to the class knowing what we're going to have a discussion around because I pull, I just tell you, we're talking about these two chapters for the, this class session. 
you better read it because you will be lost <laughs> if you don't. And I will pull just different scenarios or incorporate the two case scenarios as well as discussion-based learning. And we're having conversations about it. And through the conversations, now students are learning. They're learning, okay, yes, this is the professor's perspective, but it's only my perspective, right? The healthcare field is multifaceted. So it takes multi, it's, and it's rooted in human innovation. It's one of the industries where you can't just, um, use technology and that's it. No, it's rooted on human in innovation. So how do we start to ideate the things that will help create change in healthcare, help us solve problems? There's still a lot of gaps in our U.S. healthcare system, but also the things that we've done really well. And so when students have felt like they're a part of the conversation, it makes the class experience for me and my years of doing it so much easier. You don't have any students just like, oh, being mute is required for you to speak in my class. If you don't, uh, I will remove you. I, like if I called you three times and I have not heard from you, you have not said nothing, you will be exited out of the class respectfully because <laughs> I'm assuming you are not there because yeah. this is not just, um, I'm going to sit behind the computer. And many students, they'll tell you like, oh, I thought online learning would be easier. And that's not the case at all. Like when we have holidays, the online learning setting is still there. You still have to do the work. <laughs> you still have to show up. You still have to communicate both in the classroom when we have a, um, for my synchronous courses, when we have to meet in the virtual classes, then you also have to contribute to the discussion board. So there's a lot of conversations that we are having around the subject of the week. And and I just find that it's so much fruitful. Um, it's, it gives me the opportunity to learn what students also believe uh, or who are working in the field is already are adding and the things that they see because education to me is a two-way exchange. Yes, I'm the professor. Yes, uh, you know, you see me as this um, person who's in charge of the classroom, but it doesn't mean that I can't learn from you. And I think that's why my students really appreciate me as a professor because I'm like, what do you think? You work in the field, you said you're, and the first week of class, the first two weeks, I'm like, okay, if you tell us what you do, let's get your background, you know, where, where are you aspiring to be? Many of them now, because my classes, I usually get the students who are uh, juniors or seniors and, um, or master's graduate students. And so a lot of them are already working in the field. So tell us about your experience with this topic, because one thing in healthcare, you're always going to see what you learn in a classroom in the field. It's not one of those industries was like, oh, you will never see this again. Absolutely not. What you see in a classroom, you're going to see it in the field. So let's have conversations around that. And students appreciate that. I see them not just as a student, but as a professional in the field. Mm, that's so good. And I'm sure like, as you mentioned, your experience actually being in the field is such a benefit for you now being a professor. It actually makes me think of my mom. I think my mom will really love this episode. She teaches oh. business classes. So she has a MBA and her PhD is in business management. Okay. Um, so, so many of her students are non-traditional. They have jobs, they have businesses. And so yeah. they're also taking her classes. So they actually have things to contribute um, to her class as well, just like your students. So I really love that. And um, that kind of, you mentioned like your students find you on YouTube. Let's just talk about that now. So you have a business <laughs> as well, $400. Yes. And I love this because you've grown it like so quickly. Every time I see you on YouTube, I'm like, yes, she's doing it. She's killing it. So tell us what kind of led you to start for Health Scholars and like, what does it look like now? 
Yes. And so, um, you know, many doctoral, uh, once we students, once we become doctors, many people focus on publishing their research. But the doctorate that I have is a professional doctorate. So it's really about practical application. And I was like, well, I don't want to, I mean, publishing research is nice. And I, you know, we need research in healthcare, but how can I use my dissertation in a way that can, you know, people can learn from it. And so initially I started for Health Scholars as a platform where I'm just going to share my doctoral experience now that I'm on the other side, now that I have the doctorate degree. And I'm, I have a doctorate degree in a field where you don't see a lot of people of color um, hold this degree. And even in the positions where they train you for like, okay, once you get this doctorate, you're going to be a CEO in the hospital, even in that, you don't see the you know diversity in the representation. So I wanted to as just first share my experience. Like this is what I went through with the writing process. My dissertation got rejected six times, but keep pushing. <laughs> All right. Yes, I thank you for sharing that. That's so good to share. Yes, yeah, and that was humbling for me too because I've always like I say this with the you know school has always been like something where. Not, I won't say not challenge me, but I've always been a, a top scholar. Let me just say that I've always been a high performing scholar. And so school had came really easy to me. We do the work, I write, I go, we graduate. That's like what my norm. And <laughs> when, when I got, because I always like, okay, I have other things I'm doing. So this school cannot dominate my time. I got to graduate and move forward. And when I got to the doctoral program, my first two years, it was like that. You take your didactic courses. You pass, you write, you go because I'm. I can read a textbook, I can read articles, and I can summarize and I understand. I'm a very visual learner, and so for me, it's like, oh, this makes sense. I see the big picture. I see the problem. This is how you solve it. But now, when it got to the dissertation writing stage, this is where it was challenging for me because there was nobody talking about it. Then. I was doing a professional doctorate. So all of the advice were for um, PhDs. And um, it, we we have two different writing styles because the PhD, you're focusing on original research. Whereas a professional doctor, we're taking what has already been published and we're now solving a problem and writing recommendations. So there was no blueprint. Then I didn't have the best of best um academic support. And so I literally was frustrated. I'm like, cause I'm a, I'm a person who was like, tell me what you want. And, um, I'm very black and white at times, but I know that, the, you know, the world is about uncertainty and operating in the gray, but I'm just like, tell me what you want. And they would just say, oh, well, this one review will say, this is amazing. The next one says this can't pass and just circumnavigating all of this reviewers feedback and trying to get to the document. And so for me, I was like, Okay, how do I how do I overcome this? Because it's becoming like rejection after rejection. I'm like, and I have a the support here and a mentor, my dissertation supervisor, and she's like, well, yeah, it's perfect. So I'm just like, well, you say it's perfect, but every time we submit this, it's getting rejected. So something has to change. And YouTube was my saving grace. Mm -hmm. I went to YouTube when it came down to statistics, when it came down to writing a capstone type of dissertation, which is different than what the PhD scholars write. Um, it was a, a channel called Grad Coach. 
that channel helped me get to the finish line because it was a channel that talked about, you know, qualitative research, quantitative research, mixed methods research. This is how you do your statistical testing. This is what you, it was very comprehensive. And because I had something now as a blueprint, it made it easier for me to make the changes to my dissertation and we can move ahead. But at, when I found them, I was on the fifth rejection. Mm-hmm. And many people would give up, but I was like, no, I've invested all of this time. <laughs> I've spent all of this money towards it. And I'm a person like my time is meaningful to me. That's why I said I would choose freedom every time. So when you have my time, we have to maximize it. If not, I have to get out of here. So my thing was like, I need to finish this. On top of that, we're not entering the pandemic. It's just looking, you know, changes are happening and I'm getting starting to feel like I'm stressed out. So I submitted my dissertation for the sixth time. And I was like, yes, we're going to do it. And it got rejected. And um, I remember just, this is how I want to tell you people is always in your corner and God's in timing. He just sent a scholar. This is a, I did not know him from anywhere. Um, I had saw him on, what's the platform? Thumbtack or thumbnail? Where it's like a academic like tutorial. So if you need like dissertation editing and writing, because I didn't even know that you need to pay an editor to do your edits for you. I didn't know, nobody told us any of this. So I just went on there and he just so happened to understand what it is to write a capstone type of dissertation. And I sent it to him. He did not charge me $1. Wow. He did not charge me a dollar. He was just like, I'm looking at what the problem is here. And he told me, he said, if you just do this, this, and this, the reviewers will all agree. And as he told me, because I'm a person like, okay, if you're going to do your, that's one advice I can give doctoral students, take your uh, feedback and work on it and change it quickly. And um, when he told me that on the seventh time, it got approved. Wow. Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm going to cry. That is amazing. Uh, As you can imagine, I was like, oh, man. I mean, I know you got your doctorate. I know, I know you passed, but like, I was nervous. Yes. And, but you know, it just, because I I think my experiences before of just always being on a grind, always I'm going after what I want. It helped me stay in the, the long run, because if I would, did not have those experiences of hustling, doing multiple things <laughs> at one time, having passions here, it wouldn't have given me the tenacity to like forge ahead. And I'm like, no, I have to get to the finish line. I'm the first one in my family who's going to become a doctor. Um, there's nobody in my family who's going to become a doctor. And there was nobody. Now my dad, do- my dad, he got his doctorate degree. What? And I was, yeah, I was able to help him. He did a financial accounting and I was able to help him. But but when he saw my like drive, because he'd been on and off, like doing doctorate, he would stop on and off, life happenings, working, he would stop. But when he saw the fight in me, like I got to finish, I finish everything I start for the most part. I got to finish what I started. And when he saw that, he's like, okay, I need to finish what I started because you've inspired me. And I just, I'm grateful, but I wanted to share that on the platform because mm-hmm. If that wasn't for that YouTube channel, I probably, I don't know where I would be. I don't know. I, w- I don't know if I would have been able to figure it out because that led me into Dr. Douglas, who I can't remember his on what I don't think is thumbnail. I can't remember the platform, but he was just so kind to me, so gracious to me. And um, he was just like, yeah, 
He's like, you edit. And he was like, you don't need to pay for an editor. You've edited your resume, your dissertation just fine. He was like, this is like professional editing. You're all right. And I was like, okay. He's like, it's just that your statistic, um, your sample data can be a little tweak here. Um, write more, insert more of yourself in your dissertation as well. And many scholars don't know this. They feel like, oh, it has to be technical. But remember, this is your um, research and you have to have a voice in it. And he's like, yeah, your voice is missing. You need to insert your voice in a topic that really, um, I got rejected on the topic a few times, but I fought for that because I'm like, I, I'm inclusive, yes, but this is the problem area. And you said we have autonomy over our research. And I know that my dissertation is not my life work. Another tip. <laughs> for those who are listening and you are like a teaching assistant and you're in the midst of doing your doctoral dissertation, it's not your life's work. You are still trying to pass. Mm -hmm. So do everything that you need to do to pass. And then when you get outside, then you become like myself and Dr. Torian. Then you do your life's work. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here. And so for Health Scholars was just an extension of my dissertation, which now it has evolved into something that I didn't even see coming. And people from all around the world is like, oh, I just love it. I want to go into health administration. I would get like medical doctors reach out to me down to just people who are in Australia. And they're like, uh, we have a program here. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do my dissertation. I want to get a job. How did you work <laughs> and do your doctorate? How did you work and get a master's degree? How did you do all of the things that you do? And so now we are heading to 6,000 subscribers and I'm by God's grace. And so now I'm like, okay, I felt like I've exhausted everything that I thought I was supposed to talk about because I'm like, okay, I've shared everything that I know about my journey as it was like a relief. But now I'm like, okay, how do I keep this going? Because it's been something that people have come back and said, it has helped me. I've got hired. You taught me this. It opened my eye. I didn't even know you can be a doctor of health administration. Um, which degree is right for me? And so it's like an extension of teaching for me. I think that's who I created my own. And that's what led me to you. I think that was because you were at, you were the first person who was that I saw was actually um, sh like sharing content about how to create this learning experience because there was all these business coaches. And I'm like, I've taken a few programs. I'm like, this does not touch upon what I want to do. Um a lot of these students, they don't have much money, you know, yeah. they're like, like, how do we still support them? And then, um, you know, doctoral students, we, you may have some grant funding, but you got to spend that wisely. So how do we support them in a way? So I wasn't finding that with all the business coaches, but when I came across your channel, I was like, Oh, this girl is she, she gets it. Like, yes, she's a professor. She can relate. I do not want to spend, I don't have enough time to spend on this business Monday through Sunday. I have to have something in like a day. <laughs> yes. preferably half a day and um just speaking with you you've given me the systems to now turn it into a business because i didn't even come with in it as a business i came in it as just wanting to share what i know but then you taught me how to make it a 
business. And so thank you for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, from from when we first met, like, I don't know if people realize this. When we first met, you hadn't even started the YouTube channel for for Health Scholars. And Mm -hmm. now you have over 6,000 subscribers and people are reaching out to you. That is so amazing. I like see you. I don't know if you have been yet like traveling and speaking at different departments and stuff in universities. (laughs) Because like, that's kind of how I felt a little bit with the academic society. It's like, I've shared everything I know at this point. At this point, Mm -hmm. I'll just be recreating videos. And so that's when I realized, well, not everyone who's a grad student has seen my YouTube channel. They don't even know what I'm teaching over here. And so being invited to speak at different departments and universities, that's been really nice. And it's like now I can just repurpose all the things I've shared before just to a new audience. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I love it. I'm so proud of you and everything you're doing with Poor Health Scholars. People are loving it. And I love seeing all of your stuff. And not only are do you have for health scholars, you also wrote a book, which I think the title of your book, I feel like we've seen us, we've seen it. We've seen it throughout this whole like interview. Like this is you, right? So you wrote a book called <laughs> Be Bold, Be Confident, Be You, a motivational guidebook in shattering the fear ceiling. And you have this other foundation, Be Bold Africa as well, that is related. So can you tell us a little bit about um, what your book is about, what led you to writing it, as well as your foundation as well? Yes. So um, my book was an opportunity for me to release um, the a lot of the things that because I was growing in this space where people I was getting a, a bit of notoriety across New York and people were even across the globe knowing me before I started for Health Scholars. They had this impression of me like I don't have struggles. I haven't gone through traumas. It just always comes to me that way. And I just wanted an opportunity to be real with people like, yes, uh, the woman you see today is because I have gone through some hard things, things that um, many people don't survive from. So I lost my mom at the age of 14. And, um, you know, as she passed my life, I didn't know she was my everything at the time. I didn't know how I was going to do life without her. I didn't even know that that was possible. So even now, as I just had my birthday in January, my 37th birthday, I look at myself, I'm like, wow. Um, you, you know, you really, really, really am someone that your mother would be proud of because like when she passed, I was just like, who, first of all, is this things that happen to people at 14? How do you survive? Everybody needs their mother. I I don't know what life is going to look like, but I've always like into a way I didn't grieve the way people grieved. I was just like, okay, Let's do it. It's like sometimes I have to stop myself and say life is not business as usual. You have to feel the emotions. And so my book was very cathartic for me because it allowed me to share my story. It allowed me to share that in becoming bold, in becoming confident, the person that you see in front of you who speaks very well, who is, you know, it doesn't seem like she has any stressors. It just comes natural. There's a story behind that. And um, for years, although I was doing all of this amazing things, I was operating under a fear ceiling. And unlike, you know, many people know the glass ceiling concept where you can throw a rock and you know that if you hit the glass, it'll shatter. The fear ceiling is dark. Mm 
You don't know when you're coming out of it. You don't know how to come out of it. You're just operating. And for me, because I lost a person who was truly like, she was my everything. And a, the one who supported me, even in my creativity. And, um, you know, no slight to my father, but Nigerian parents, some, oftentimes they don't uh, see the power of creativity. And, uh, you know, having a creative mind is very much a, you got to do this. You have to be business. You have to... <laughs> You have to be a doctor. You have to be an engineer and take life seriously. Where my mom was like, just be the best version of whatever you want to be. So that's how I was even able to explore the performing arts. Because my dad was not trying to hear me going to a performing arts high school and middle school. I started in middle school, but I was in a gifted program. So on like after school activities, that's where we did the creative arts aspect. Then to do it as high school, my dad was not trying to hear that. He said, that sounds like a no future ambition. <laughs> that is not my child. And my mom was always been like, no, you got to let them explore all aspects of themselves because you don't want your children to resent you. And um, my mom just gave me the freedom to just be me, you know, no matter how it was, I, brainiac, I, funny, because I was very funny. I'm a very funny person too. So people just like, you all of this? And I'm like, my mom just allowed allow me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could be very serious at times, but even in life, I just know that life is just meant to be lived. And um, for years, I was just like, I was not living. I was just doing. I was just trying under the fear that I got to make, I'm the only one who's going to take care of me. Like my mom is not here. And my dad, you know, you as a woman, you relate to your father a little differently than your mother. And my dad had this, although he wasn't a traditional Nigerian father, still he had this like cultural barrier where he could not understand what it is to be a woman, a young girl growing up in Brooklyn and trying to find her self, her identity, and still also very passionate in a lot of the things that I did. It was just very hard. We we didn't connect on that level. And I just was like, nobody understands. So I, I would do all of this amazing work. But then at nighttime, I would go home and I would cry because the person who I knew would have appreciated that for me is no longer here. And so as I wrote the book, um, it really just gave me a chance to share my story. I didn't know it was going to go this far and um, really hit 25 different African countries. Wow. But I had did a speaking engagement at, um, was it Clark Atlanta? At, for the Nelson Mandela Institute, they had their fellows there. And a, a friend of mine at the time was like, yeah, you should just come and speak and share your book. And because of that meeting, the because they were all from different African countries, they the women, the girls took my book and they were reading it. Now they were having like book clubs uh, around the book. Um, so like in Uganda, they had a book club. Zimbabwe, they had a book club around the book, and it was just spreading. And I was just like, and they're like, yeah, your book is in <laughs> Africa. Then um, I started to see sales in Europe, and it was just um, women who were like me. First, first and second generation, even third generation, no, first and second generation African um, uh, diasporans, you know, of children of Africans. And we all have the similar story. Like we, outside of our culture, we are somebody and how do we operate in this world? And um, they many related to my story. Then it started going to the Caribbean and then it hit America. Like, wow, <laughs> it came back. And then it came back to America. And so because of that, I started the Be Bold Africa Foundation because my heart was always into how do I um, go back and make impact on the continent? Mm -hmm. And because I was in the UN group for years, it allowed me to experience 
cultures, different African cultures, um, different, yeah, African cultures. It wasn't just Nigeria. Because sometimes as Nigerians, we can dominate. And yeah. it's like, I need to see other. There's a big continent of Africa. There's more than Nigeria. And the UN group allowed me to see that. And I realized that we all, as women, have similar um, challenges and goals and desires. And so if I could do it, let me show you how you two can do it as well. And so New York State, um, no, sorry, the Reciprocal Exchange and um, USAID, they were in partnership with the fellowship. They were having what we call a reciprocal exchange. And um, we submitted a proposal to win their grant. And I was able to do a four-day conference in Zimbabwe, uh, virtually because it was COVID. And we, we we were only expecting 50 women, but we impacted over 250 women. Wow. The Zimbabwean uh, region, so Harare, which is their uh, capital city and the surrounding. And um, they were like, we need more of this. And my book was the center for many of them. They were like, oh, we're reading this book. And I'm just like, this is my story. But they're like, your story, I've learned so much. <laughs> and it has empowered me to stand, uh, even in the face of adversity, to uh, stand strong in who you are and be confident in who you are. I I am who I say I am, period. If you if you don't like me, I still wish you well, but I can't change for you. I, I have to live my life for what God says I'm supposed to live my life for. And um, people would just admire the boldness of that. They're like, you don't care. You're going to say, <laughs> say who you serve. And I'm like, that's the only way I know how to be. I, I'm not a person to sugarcoat because I, I'm a black and white person. So it's like... Do I have to tippy toe around you? That's frustrated to me. Let me say what I want to say. I'll make sure I say it respectfully. Yeah. <laughs> and we keep it moving. And people, that's just how the book took off. Till this day, um, although I don't promote it often just because of other things I'm doing, I still get book sales. People are still buying it. And um, people want to know my story. And I'm just like, wow, thank you, God. <laughs> Yes, that is so. We have like a African celebrity here right now. Like you are known around the continent. That is so cool. What a beautiful story. I'm so glad you got to share that here. And I'm sure like so many people are inspired by it. This has been such an amazing conversation. This is so good. I almost don't want to go, but we do. I So before we do go, I always ask everyone on the podcast to answer this one question because I imagine there are people who are listening who are very new to being college instructors or they're planning to become a college instructor. So do you have any final bits of teaching advice for new college instructors? Anything that you found helpful for yourself too? Yes. I think when teaching really became enjoyable for me is when I um, found my voice and what I wanted to bring into the classroom. And I think, yes, there's different models, yes, that you can follow, but you have to understand your why. It's not a feel for everybody. Um, not everybody can teach. Um, even if you can teach, not everybody can be successful in the classroom because you are coming in and you're managing multiple personalities and you have to respect these people as adults. They're not children. And, um, I would tell you, you have to always go into it with the why. And as long as you understand why you're teaching, everything else will fall into place. And don't be afraid to continuously learn and ask 
the, being a, a stellar instructor is also rooted by having a good support system um, behind you. And it can be a diversity of people. Um, I think in my departments and just working at the universities that I had, they just appreciated that when I didn't know something, I asked. And I wasn't intimidated to ask you it. At the end of the day, the question needs to be answered because I want to do it right. I want to make sure that we're facilitating a um, well-written uh, and thought-provoking type of learning environment so that these scholars go into the field and do amazing work in healthcare. The ones who are going to take care of you, me, <laughs> the ones who are responsible for our dis the decisions on the business side of healthcare. Um, so you have to go in it knowing your why and knowing that you your voice is valuable. Mm -hmm. Many people relate to who they can identify with. Um, and so your students, not all of them, but you'll find that you'll have classes as you continue to grow in this field where it's starting to re be representative of who you used to be. Mm -hmm. And when I look at my students, I'm like, oh, I used to be you. <laughs> <laughs> I used to have, you know, this insight, these questions, these drives, these wants. And you'll find that they'll the most thing that they'll appreciate, not necessarily the textbook, not necessarily the assignments, but you and what you have to add and the experiences that you have. So don't be afraid to professionally tell your story. That doesn't mean share all your business in the classroom, mm -hmm. but really be personable. That's the, the advice that I can give to you. As a new college instructor, going into a, a profession that requires you to be selfless, right? If you are coming into this just to make money, this is not necessarily the industry for you, although you can. I'm not going to say you can't, but you, it takes you a while, right? To yeah. find like your book sales, your papers, um, you know, your department, getting promoting. But in the beginning, it's really like, ooh. <laughs> Okay, I have to have a passion for this to be able to even learn how to be successful at this. So going into it, knowing that you is you and be open to learn, be open, see your students, not just as students, but as professionals who are also coming to add value to you in the classroom, because it's your students who now help you keep the job. Trust me. Is the students who they speak highly of you. You treat them as human beings. You are personable, but professional. You are um, competent in your um, subject matter. That is important because I show up to the classroom knowing that, okay, I may not know everything, but I know the subject matter here. And I know it like the back of my hand. I could teach it with my eyes closed. <laughs> and, and I could teach it like that for years, you know, and, and students appreciate that you show up with that uh, authority that I'm a master of this subject, especially for us who, um, who are becoming doctors or are doctors in the field. You've gotten the degree that says, yeah, you're an expert in this field. How do I take this expertise into the classroom and still be reflective of me and as the, the scholar who was once a student? Yeah. Yes. I love that you share that. That actually confirms something for me. I've started to like create, I'm starting to create more content about teaching and I want to create this like audio course for professors, especially new instructors about how the students are so important. And just like anything you can do to improve your students' experience is going to improve your teaching as well as your course evaluations and things like that. So I'm so glad to hear you say that. Thank you so much for sharing all of these awesome goodies that you shared with us. Will you let us know where we can find you online to check out what you are doing? Yes. So um, I'm on LinkedIn. So Dr. Robusa Owe, um, that's where I'm at most of the time. 
And um, if you want to learn just about my body of work, you can go to my website, which is uh, arobusaobi.com. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here and sharing. And thank you to everyone who's listening and watching. I will see you in the next one. Happy teaching. <laughs>